Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Dr. Liz Bukhar is a professor of religion and Dean's Leadership Fellow at Northeastern University in Boston. She is the author of five books, including the award-winning Pious Fashion, How Muslim Women Dress, and currently is completing a book manuscript on religious appropriation. She has written for popular media outlets such as The Atlantic, The Los Angeles Times, and Teen Vogue. In March of 2019, Dr. Liz Bukhar gave a talk at ACMCU entitled From Museum Exhibit to Protest Symbol, Exploring the Role of Islamic Fashion in U.S. Public Making. And she joins us for this episode of Building Bridges. Thank you so much for coming on on Building Bridges here with us here at ACMCU. So just to give our audience a bit of an understanding of of the topic you covered and, and such, I'd like to delve into your background a bit. So you're a professor of religion from yep. Northeastern. Mm-hmm. But, but you're talking about fashion. So how did that come about and how did that uh, connect um, in that way? So it was a little bit of a mistake, I think, <laughs> a little bit of a fluke. Uh, my interest in clothing and fashion really started back when I was doing field work in Tehran, Iran, way back in 2004. And I was doing work on not on clothing, not on fashion. I was doing work on two different ways, two different things. I was in the Khomeini archives at the time studying different things that he had written. But then I was also working with leaders of the women leaders of human rights organizations and NGOs about what issues were important to them. And none of them were talking about clothing. It wasn't on the top 10 list of things they were concerned about. They were working on you know, custody rights, uh, employment rights, legal rights, and other sort of um, sectors. And so it wasn't a focus of my research at all. But there I was in grad school living in Iran, and I had to myself wear what was considered Sharia-appropriate attire by the Iranian authorities. So I had to figure out how to do that, which was a little confusing because there's not a lot of how-to guides about what to wear. So that was a lot of anxiety going there as a, as a researcher. And, you know, I, I did that and it sort of became this way that my Iranian friends and I would blow off steam, the sort of retail therapy. Um, but it was never really a research um, interest of mine. Uh, so that sort of changed in different ways. One is that I sort of became, one of it's sort of a, a pull and one of it's sort of a push. So I was pushed a little bit into it because if you work on Islam and women, everyone wants to talk to you about the veil. That's the first thing you get asked in a Q&A, no matter what you're talking about. It's what students want to know about. Um, it's what your departments want you to teach. Uh, Non-Muslims are obsessed with the way that women, Muslim women dress. So even if you don't want to think about it or talk about it, you end up doing it because you are an expert on, you know, on this population. So there's that. And you know, I realized that I, if I was going to have, if I had to talk about it, I want to make sure I had something interesting to say. 
So it was a little bit of a push. The pull for it was as I was doing work, different field work in different Muslim majority locations. So in Indonesia and in Turkey, I realized it looked really different in these locations. Um, the, the fabrics were different, the, the cut was different, the design was different, what was considered modest was different. And I thought, you know, this is actually a way into the topic that is a little different. Um, and I'm a comparativist at heart. I like having lots of different things on the table at once. Um, and so that was sort of the pull. I became It became a way to explore other issues in the tradition and other issues related to women and gender. Um, so I, for my teaching, it's a way I trick students. Like I said, like, okay, come take a class on the veil. Oh yeah. Okay. And then we end up talking about colonialism and yeah. employment and effect and like, you know, the Quran. Um, so it turns out that it's a, actually a very broad, a very broad topic. I mean, do you find that a lot of young people, students, um, folks who may have an interest in religion or in, in religious attire may have some misconceptions yeah, I mean, I think there's misperceptions among my students. I think there's misperceptions among most Americans, both Muslims and non-Muslims, about the real big variety of ways in which um, Muslim women's clothing is affected by a number of issues. I, mean, I think that my students who show up in my class, for example, assume that Muslim women are wearing what sacred texts tell them to wear or what their imam is telling them to wear or what their husband is telling them to wear. But actually, Muslim women's clothing is much more complicated than that. I mean, it's much less and much more. I mean, much it's just what Muslim women wear <laughs> on one hand, right? Just like what anybody wears. And it's affected by a lot of different things, whatever local culture, um, style, style cultures are, what trends are, what their friends are wearing, what their parents are wearing, you know, where, where they are, um, whether they're a city, whether they're in a, a small town. And so I, I think that that sort of... Um, complication uh, is what my students are a little surprised by it and actually you know I've done a fair amount of work sort of for more mainstream media outlets and the first couple op-eds I got asked to write were things like can you please just tell us the five versions of Muslim women dress that there exists in the world oh, or can just five just five or yeah, ten just, or however many you do and I was like oh it doesn't really work that way right like where do you like which location are we talking about which Muslim women um you know what 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 time period are we in that it comes from a good place and that we think that we want to we know that maybe we're not as knowledgeable as we should be and we think that if we can put things in boxes we'll understand better that's just not the way that people work or religion works, right? And the problem with that is that if you assume, like if you see a woman in a face veil that you know something about her piety or her religious life, like you just don't, right? So putting, I really pushed back against different editors that, you know, I can't write that piece. That piece isn't, isn't true or right of the women I've been working with that doesn't speak to their reality. There's been a lot in the news over the past, you know, five, you know, 10 years relating to some issues that have arisen for folks using traditional religious wear in a way in which they may not know they're, they're conveying. And one example of this would be the Shepherd Foley flag hijab in his um, depiction of solidarity for the women's movement in uh, 2017. Now, this is, it's a, it, was a, it was a very divisive thing, but a lot of people, a lot of you know, well-minded folk may have not realized that that image was offensive. They may have thought it was something empowering. How do you answer those things when it's coming from someone who may be thinking they're showcasing solidarity but unknowingly um, participating in what could be very offensive? 
Right. So I think this is actually a a really huge problem right now, particularly in the U.S. And it's one reason why I've sort of pivoted from working internationally um, to my next book project is really focused on the U.S. and sort of practice and discourse here. Because I think that while good intentions are, um, are nice, they they are not enough. And I think that particularly uh, prog- liberal progressives have been saying things and doing things that maybe are causing violence and, and harm to the communities they are trying to be in solidarity with. So the flag hijab image that you mentioned is, is a good example. I mean, that was an image that uh, a lot of my secular feminist colleagues really embraced it as a way to sort of say, you know, we are with Muslim women against this sort of very negative rhetoric coming out of out of the administration. Um, so they put it on their Facebook picture or they put it on the wall of their office on campus or something. Um, but to some Muslim women, that image was offensive, um, maybe in part maybe because it was produced by a white male non-Muslim artist. Um, the woman who's pictured in the original photograph herself is not someone who wears um, hijab daily. She's put it on for this photo shoot. Um, they were upset it was a flag. Why do we need to, like, why are you putting a flag on a Muslim woman? Muslim women don't wear, walk around with um, flags. Not all Muslim women wear a head covering in this way. So it really erased a lot of diversity among the Muslim community itself. Um, and I think that also, I mean, I think that a bigger problem the, the flag sort of imagery is that and there's a lot of things that the U.S. government have done um, to direct violence against Muslim communities, right? If you look at military campaigns, um, that's the flag evokes those sort of the, that sort of history. If you think about uh, the Muslim travel ban or policies, again, the American flag hits, it brings up these sort of these actions. And so to celebrate, try to celebrate the Muslim American community through this image felt like tokenism. It felt disrespectful to some people. And again, well, it might have been well-intentioned. And in many cases, I think it was. But you have to, I think particularly right now, because there's so much anti-Muslim racism and hatred, like both in the in words, but also in deeds, that everyone has to really think about what they're putting out there um, and make sure it's helping make things better and not worse and be willing to listen if the community is saying like actually just don't like please like thank you but there are other ways to show solidarity with us you need to be able to listen to that um and this is a particularly important time to be able to check yourself i think yeah now do you think that these um social media influencers they're very very obviously influential especially on something visual like fashion or like, I know my wife is. Uh, she loves um, understanding how to best, you know, apply uh, cosmetics to create a very unique look. And there's a lot of influencers that help with. This is the best way to do X, Y, and Z, and and it's imitated and so on. Do you think that social media influencers have played a role, whether positive or negative, in use of religious attire in? society and how we see it and how people may embody it in the wrong way yeah well so the last book i wrote was called pious fashion how muslim women dress um and that book i really was really inspired by or a lot of the information for that book really came from this sort of online conversations that were happening i really it's like the uh, in addition to the fact that like i was in these countries and could see the the clothing and um how the politics were affecting it 
the really interesting conversations were happening online by bloggers. Um, women were able to create, you know, stay-at-home moms are able to create a platform for themselves by giving tutorials about how to wrap their hijab, 600, you know, 60 ways to wrap your hijab, um, or um, displaying their own fashion sense, or sort of like you're saying, makeup tutorials. Um, it was an opportunity for entrepreneurship, right, for Muslim women. There was a huge interest of that online way before it became sort of interesting and trendy to mainstream popular media, which I think is it's on their radar now, but it wasn't before. I, th I think that I don't think that that is actually part of the problem. I think that that made Muslim aesthetics, Muslim clothing, even headscarves seem cool in a new way, particularly to young, you know, media savvy people, social media savvy people. And the problem with it seeming cool and in style and inclusive is that part of me is a little bit, or I have this fear in the back of my head that um, it will start to get adopted in more and more ways by non-Muslims um, for not only politics, like solidarity politics, but just for like fashion statements and style statements. So I'm thinking back, you know, last five years episodes of American Next Top Model when someone's walking around with a hijab for no particular reason, wearing a bikini, or images we see coming out of Coachella and other music festivals where girls are wearing some crazy version of a hijab with sundresses, um, non-Muslim women. And so there is a way in which while the acceptance and celebration is positive from one point of view, there is a way in which it could create a devaluation of these practices that are about cultivating a certain character. I mean, a woman who does, not all Muslim women think you need to cover your head, for example, or wear a long sleeve, certainly, right? There's a huge range of interpretations of about what proper attire is for Muslim women within the Muslim community. But for women who think, for example, they should wear a headscarf in public every day, um, it's not only about conveying to people that they are a good Muslim woman, but it's about how to become a good Muslim woman. That practice is cultivating a certain self. It's about becoming modest by putting it on every day. And in some ways you um, devalue its readability as a, a thing of piety when people are wearing a Coachella. Um, I mean, actually, this is a complaint I heard from a woman in Iran. In Iran, it's required. And I heard from very devout Muslim women that, that was a problem because it meant that when I'm in Iran, for example, as a non-Muslim woman, I'm wearing a headscarf. I'm not a pious Muslim woman. And somehow it devalues her choice to put on a headscarf if she wants to, if everyone has to. So there's a way in which the sort of the mainstreaming of these things changes it um, for the religious community or could change it potentially. I'm not sure. I'm still, still on the fence of where are we yeah, going. <laughs> but I, I mean, not to, not to say, but how do you stop a momentum of popularity when brands, huge brands like Michael Kors, are coming out with fashions for modest dress that some could consider modeled after religious attire. I mean, it becomes popular. How do you stop that? Right. So I don't. I mean, I'm not interested in trying to stop the sort of um, the sort of paying attention to modest fashion by major designers. I think that for Muslim women consume like consume who want to consume and purchase um, modest attire from these these brands, just like you know anyone else wants to have a Michael Kors handbag. I want a Michael Kors headscarf. Um, I think that in some ways that can be seen as a positive thing. I think the problem becomes when this is happening simultaneously with 
the sort of uh, backlash against Muslim women who are publicly visible as Muslim because of their headscarves, right? And so I think that the problem is not that like Michael Kors just came out with an abaya and a headscarf this week. The problem is with the ways in which um, non-Muslims are reading these clothing statements and being careful that they're not assuming that like, well, it's okay for me to play with this um, in a way in a way that would maybe be disrespectful to um, the Muslim community. Again, I think this is just a question of like owning people's owning privilege. If you are not Muslim, if you are Christian, if you are secular in the U.S., you are in a position of privilege, just like if you are white, just like if you are middle upper class. And knowing that just because you can do things doesn't mean you always should do things and be willing to like not get to do everything just because you can. And thinking about creating space um, and again, being told that being told maybe you shouldn't and listening to that. One thing I felt that from a fashion perspective was has was real well received was what Uniqlo did with their um, their modest line of, of fashion. And, uh, you know, actually there's a lot of Uniqlo stores even opening up here in the DMV, uh, not to mention in Tyson's. Uh, Uniqlo opened up last year. Very, very popular. And a lot of their clothes, it's, you know, and I know you said this in your talk, the whole goal is to get to a place where fashion is, it's about how comfortable and how usable, you know. So, yeah, so Uniqlo is an interesting case because they were one of the first ready-to-wear brands that had they had a collaboration early on in 2016 with a UK-based Muslim designer, fashion designer, and they were really about creating a line that, in the beginning, was marketed mostly. You actually couldn't buy it in the US. It was marketed particularly in Southeast Asia to Muslim women, and the idea was to have a ready, off-the-rack. Muslim clothing so that girls didn't have to sort of girls and young women didn't have to sort of go and mix and match from other brands, figure out how to like layer things um, to have that accessible. And again, pieces were very affordable and it was marketed as modest and religious. And then over the years, it's been it's continued this partnership. But I think they realized that there was a market beyond that community. So first of all, modest doesn't just mean Muslim. There are a lot of different reasons why women might dress modestly. Some are religious and some are not. So there are religious communities certainly that talk about modesty as well as the Muslim community, but there are also just women who want to um, dress modestly. So the sort of like marketing of this line as it comes out year over year has sort of changed. So at first it was a modest religious line, then it was a modest line for everybody. And this last, last collection, it's really not about religion or modesty at all in the sort of print ads. It's really interesting. It's become about what you wear if you are promote if you are a cosmopolitan woman it's comfortable it's carefree it's elegant so elegant right becomes the word not covered or erased yeah. it's a total morph- and again it's not and here you buy it this this line is available all the Uniqlo's you could buy it you know I'm from Boston you buy it on the store on Newberry Street it's not just available online yeah. so again this I think that there's a change and we may be moving away from in terms of the industry maybe moving away from designers thinking they can only market to um, Muslim women, and I mean Muslim designers as well, right, to be able to, to market to all modest women, to be able to market to everybody, that there is an interest in mid-length skirts and turtlenecks this season that have nothing to do with religion, right? Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's part of, I think, of what is happening. And Uniqlo is really, their, their early line, they're really um, a pioneer in terms of ready-to-wear um, lines 
I mean, but a decade ago, you didn't really see this, did you? I mean, or did we? Am I and ma'am? Maybe. So I just we. Didn't. I mean, we. Andrew and I are sitting here in Georgetown. It's like two white people. No, we didn't see it. I think that's right. I think we weren't paying attention to it. It wasn't on our radar. Yeah, in the West. I think. Um, I mean, Muslim women were paying attention to clothing and fashion, right, online. But there wasn't a lot of coverage by the media um scholars have been working on this but only sort of for a, a, a decade it was a little bit under the radar and there's a couple of reasons for that like you start off saying you're a religion professor you're working on fashion in general fashion studies has had to sort of make make a space for itself because people think of fashion well we guess what they think of it as they yeah, think of it yeah. as trivial yeah, it's feminine it's, it doesn't know, matter it's, it's just that yeah, yeah it's not important actually you know there so the going um next month to give a talk at the Costume Society of America, right? So people who really take fashion very seriously. You can learn a lot about a lot of different things from clothing. Clothing is part of material culture. As you said, clothing is important. It's important to you and to me. You and I both had decisions about what we were going to wear this morning. You know, I had to wear a certain, you know, I had to wear boots or I had to wear a statement necklace or I had to wear a certain statement jacket. I am performing a certain sort of clothing for the, the space I'm in as well as trying to project something. So clothing is part of uh, you know, it's contextual. So what I wear here is different than what I wear at home when I'm writing or walking the dog or teaching my classes. So that's true also for Muslim clothing. Um, it's there are politics around it. There are there are traditions of cloth. Um, so I mean, I think one of the, the most beautiful or most interesting or parts of um, getting to think about pious fashion, the three locations that I did for the book was I got to think about textiles and local traditional textiles in Indonesia. So things like batik or in Iran, the way in which sort of um, local embroidery was being used in the clothing and um, the sort of neo-Ottoman sort of aesthetic in the, in the Turkish clothing. Um, so, you know, all these, depending on what you want to study, fashion becomes really rich and it's been ne neglected and kind of ignored. So, um, I forget what your question was no, about that. But no, it's yeah, so true I because to go, Yay, fashion. I mean, for, for a little bit of transparency in myself, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm wearing a rather very monochromatic, uh, you know, shirt and pants. He's got some plaid on. He does. Good, but yeah. you might not know. So I have purple. <gasps> pink and purple so socks. I'm the reason I'm. The reason I'm wearing pink and purple socks is because as as a Christian, I'm celebrating Lent. And oh, purple nice. is a color associated with the Lenten season. So I've been trying to wear purple in some way, not if, if not every day, you know, at least once or twice a week. But it's a personal thing. So no one would see this unless I, I was sitting in a chair or someone noticed right. my socks. And I guess for men, fashion, you know, for most a lot of men who are businessmen, you know, our ties or our socks maybe our only accent and a hint as to like what we want to express on any given day. So why is no one writing about socks for Lent this season? <laughs> I don't, why are the fashion editors not know. on this? This is fascinating to me. Yeah, you say it's a very personal decision and I think that's right. And yet the, you're, it's a, when I say public performance, you're, you're doing it in public. I can see your socks now and I will be looking for everybody's socks today to see who I can. Um, so it is a way in which it's trying to communicate something. So that's the thing about, that's interesting about clothing and fashion, right? You don't just wear it. You don't just wear it for yourself. You may not be communicating. Um, so for women, I think we often dress for other women. That's who I dress for. Like that's who I get shout outs about my shoes and my, you know, statement blazers from. It's yeah, the women in my lives. My wife. Right. Yeah, she's like, oh, you know, I got so many compliments today. I'm like, oh, really? She's yeah. like, yeah, I did. 
Right. Yes. And my 10 year old, she also is very, (laughs) but so we dress for other people. We communicate things about ourselves, maybe values, um, maybe, uh, saying you dress for where you want to be and not where you are. So, you know, again, the professional world, you dress for the position you hope to have in five or 10 years. There's all kinds of things we convey with our clothing. And actually one thing I really, I've learned a lot about studying Muslim women's fashion is to think, reflect back on my own sort of clothing decisions and the, you know, expectations put on just any woman, right? Clothing is so gendered. I mean, I was told once, and I probably have told the story too many times, but I was told in grad school by a senior professor that when women go and um, when you go on campus and you interview for your you know tenure track job, make sure you have two suits for one, day one and day two because women get judged more. Men can have one suit, but they'll be paying attention to your clothing more, Liz, as a woman. So make sure you have two suits and make sure you're not wearing aggressive shoes mm-hmm. and make sure your lipstick is not too red and make sure you're happy. So all this sort of advice about what's proper for the lady scholar on the job market. Um, and you realize that like the pressure put on or the the influence put on a Muslim woman to dress a certain way is not that much different than pressure put on any woman. Um, you know, and again, this, I think that for my students understanding the diversity within even I'm trying to dress modestly, but the real range of what, how you can do that is, is really helpful and um, helpful for them for understanding how, you know, religion is not this static thing that controls you. It's an op- you know, in some ways it's an opportunity to, you know, be in the world as a modern person. Yeah, I mean, it's as individualized as fashion. Um, now, one of the terms that you mentioned a number of times is performative citizenship. Now, for those listening at home who may not be familiar with what that may mean, could you give a little bit of a description of what that refers yeah, to? Yeah, oh, that's that's so jargony. That's I know, I know, I know. Scott. You know, I wouldn't. So, I think um, when I said performative citizenship, what I really meant to do was signal that I'm interested not just in the things people say the things people do and the effect of that. So it's easy to see how anti-Muslim rhetoric could be harmful. I think we especially have seen that in the last week. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation after the massacre in New Zealand about how if you, you know, read the manifesto, how words hurt and how they matter and how they um, can really create um, uh, create a public in which certain acts of violence seem logical and doable. But there's also ways in which the things we do can can do that as well. And I don't mean like acts, like direct acts of violence, but the things that we, we do with our bodies, the way that we dress, the way that we interact, um, the practices that we engage in, these are just also as important. I mean, this has been a little bit of a not so much anymore, but it has historically been a little bit of a blind spot in religious studies where there was, you know, traditionally a lot of focus on texts. But what people do is a big part of their religious life, right? So I'm when I say performative citizenship, it's really just a way to think about what are the way what are the things that we are doing publicly around religion and how is it political and how is it affecting the world that we're in. So clothing is just one example. So you know today, um, you know, in the talk talking about the, or just now we talked about the flag hijab, like that carrying a poster at the 2017 Women's March has some effect. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that what you wear, how you carry yourself, how you talk to someone is itself speaking beyond just the words you may be using. I think it's it's important and it's a practice in understanding. 
And, you know, here at the center, we try and do our best to foster understanding. And I think one way we understand is by experiencing. And you called out an amazing exhibit at De Young, Contemporary Muslim Fashion, and how some folks, uh, particularly Western non-Muslim uh, folks who saw this in, in San Francisco, I believe that's where it was, mm-hmm. were amazed at the complexity, diversity, the textile diversity and the fabric used uh, and the way it was, it was used that they didn't never thought of when they thought of, you know, modest clothing or clothing for a religious uh, observation that modesty is a part of. Yeah. So the Dion exhibit is a really good example. So and I just want to correct you on one thing. The title was Contemporary Muslim Fashions with an S. And that's really important because, you know, the advisory board really pushed back against the originally the museum was going to call it um, Islamic fashion, I think, singular. Right. But calling it contemporary Muslim fashions already signals, hopefully, to the museum goer that they're going to see a range. They're going to see diversity. And so the young exhibit, which is at this beautiful modern art museum and right in the middle of San Francisco, is a really good example of what can you learn or what can pieces of material things communicate to you. So that's just an exhibit of mostly of a bunch of outfits on mannequins. There's some video, there's some music, but if you just walk through the exhibit and looked at this clothing, could you learn something about Islam. And I think you can. I think you can, um, you know, particularly as a non-Muslim, you, when I walk through that, I see that modesty doesn't mean the same thing. I see some of the mannequins are wearing headscarves, some are not, which, you know, one of my friends who commented, who um, from back home went out there and saw it, she commented on that. She's like, I was really surprised. And I was like, well, yeah, not all Muslim women wear headscarves, you know. Some of the, the cuts are closer to the body, some are more free-flowing. Um, some of the clothing incorporates these different textiles from different regions or sort of um, so the, the batik that's being um, that's being integrated into some of the Indonesian fashions is a very different fabric than the African wax print that you see in other fashions. So all that is really a visual representation of the fact that like there's not one way to be Muslim because there's not just one kind of Muslim, right? Muslim Islam is a really big global religion um and that diversity um it's just really important to, and you see that in the exhibit right there's lots of things you can and in some ways um when i talked to the curators of that exhibit before it opened they were taught you know they're like look we thought about this exhibit right around the election and we thought we were already playing it and the election happened and we thought like maybe we don't want to do it now and they're like no no we are going to do it now not as a political statement but because it's important and because this in some ways fashion is a soft way in to a hard conversation for people who are who do not understand islam or are fearful of it and have heard some of this rhetoric clothing might be a way Fashion is fun and it's beautiful and maybe a way into understanding that may be easier for some people. That's awesome. That really makes me feel good. I like just <laughs> I just I love this so for me it's like when when folks can connect on that which we always interact with which is fashion, clothing, art, the things that that are are part of our lives since we're you know cognate as children. I mean fashion is definitely one of them. So I also wanted to let you talk about your upcoming book for those who are really interested in, you know, in reading it and finding out about it. Where, where can they go to, to find it? Is, you know, is, 
The one that's published or the one that I'm working on Oh, now? you can say both. I mean, <laughs> I want to make sure that people who came to the talk can access all of your works. Yeah, sure. So the... The talk that I did today was really focused on the U.S. and the book that I last that that comes out of that I published the book Pious Fashion and that's a Harvard University book from 2017. That book is out, um, and that book is th- the three case studies. So it looks at what does fashion forward clothing look like on location in Tehran, Iran, Jakarta, Indonesia, and Istanbul, Turkey, and it's based on ethnography. So. All these three of these locations I went to, did focus group interview with young women and said, you know, what, what's your, what's, what's cool here? What's fashionable here? What does your local style culture look like? And tried to sort of figure out what the influences on that were. What were the politics of it? What was the government pushing or not pushing? What were the generational issues? What was, you know, the... What were the sort of different authority, what were the bloggers saying locally? So what were the different sorts of tastemakers and influencers on these women's lives? And that book is um, filled with stories from my field work, also things that I did wrong. So here I am. I'm a scholar, you know, I've been a scholar of Islam and women for a while now. And I've written another book previously about um, um, Muslim clothing and yet still I would go to on locations, on locations and have a faux pas, like dress incorrectly or get sucked into a marketing ploy that I felt embarrassed by later. And so that book is really you walking. Th- it's really written for particularly a non-Muslim audience. You walking through these locations with me yeah. and seeing because I learn the most when I mess up. I like don't, don't we all? Yes. I think, and I am totally fine to be very vulnerable and show you my mess ups if it's a way that you can learn with me, right? I, I learn the most when I'm surprised and when I make a big mistake. And so that book is full of those kind of stories as well. And the, actually, my favorite thing about that book is I collaborated. I mean, there's stories and descriptions of clothing, which is fun. But I also collaborated with three local photographers, one in each location. So in addition to these descriptions, each chapter has, um, I think, 10 images of streetwear head to toe what are people wearing and those are images curated taken by the local photographer and curated in collaboration with me and so they're kind of like you're reading along and then oh i see an example of that form of clothing or oh that's what patik jilbab looks like oh i see what she means by it looks more it looks very tailored or column like in this um uh, istanbul um, location so those are 30 color photographs that sort of work like you know, extra material in that book. So that book is, is, is really fun. And then where I'm going now, my talk today was actually a bridge between that book and my current book. So that book is all international, right? It's all work done overseas. And my talk today was about things that non-Muslims do that may be well-intentioned that actually cause problems. Um, so things like maybe adopting or appropriating forms of, um, of clothing. So something like the uh, flag hijab and the Women's March. The next book I'm working on sort of expands that more comparatively because I'm, I'm a comparativist who works in multiple traditions. And the book right now is called Stealing Your Religion. It's under contract at Harvard University Press. I don't know when my editor would say it'd be out, maybe next year. It's focused on the ways in which we borrow from religious traditions that are not our own. So uh, again, if you think about me, I uh, there's a chapter in there for about yoga, for example. So what does it mean that yoga is becoming so, so popular in the U.S. Every year, like, number of practitioners skyrockets um, up and up and up and up. And people are devoted to it as a sort of practice of wellness and um, well-being. Are there perhaps 
ethical issues related to that yoga practice as a spiritual practice that are related to critiques people make about cultural appropriation, maybe. So I'm sort of exploring that. And in that, so for that chapter, for example, I myself am a yoga practitioner. My mother is a teacher. I got certified to get teach as part of the research, thinking through the issues of is this what part is a religion? What part is spiritual? Does that distinction matter? Is there a way in which my yoga studio that I love actually creates and maintains racial and class privilege? Is there a way in which I cause harm or others cause harm by certain things they do in their practice that would be offensive to somebody? Is there a way I can decolonialize my practice? Like, again, being mindful of what I'm doing, um, can I change in a way that can make it more ethical? So can I... Can I volunteer in the local school system?